This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Let It Breathe, Act One, by S. Matisco. Helen, kick us off. So there's something about existing as a human subject in a lacking universe, right? And we never, so just in terms of all of these uh, interventions at the beginning, I'm always left with the previous week of feeling I didn't quite nail it, which is obviously you, you never nail it. That's the whole point. You're always sort of dancing around the subject. And so I then I go away. I'm like, oh, I should have said this. Or I should have said that. And I really felt there was there was an aspect of last week that I felt I was trying to um, get at that I didn't quite get. But that relates to this topic of community and uh, using the religious language. Tell me, hey, whatever. I'm going to call it communion. Other people have already. I also... Um, Maybe we'll do the B-side on this. It's not to give you a little crumb of something we might talk about later. But um, so I met Gala the other day and I spent a whole day, a whole day. I can't believe I spent a whole day. I've now deleted Instagram for a while. Like having conversations with people about the dress. <laughs> so that whole thing really clarified a lot of ideas, I think, that I've been having for a long time. So I'm not going to get to the point. I can guarantee it. But I might circle circle around it related to community and what I'm talking about, about neurosis, the ideology of promise and how it relates to capitalism or any real um, regime, let's just say, and how that relates to community slash communion. So I think that when we um, talk about our regime, okay, we live in capitalism. What is capitalism? Well, obviously, it is the appropriation of surplus value by those who own the means of production. But then I'm always talking about like the ideology of promise and neurosis and how uh, psychoanalysis can help. And I want to um, talk about how neurosis is the um, undergirding support, psychic libidinal support for the regime. And it's not just capitalism. It's any regime. You know, if you think about like the way that uh, religion um, was used as an ideological support for past orders of things, explicit religion, but the ideology of promise operated in the mode of right now it's shit, but you will get the kingdom of heaven. In capitalism, heaven has descended to earth, but it's always over the horizon. Heaven is actually in the emancipatory now, but uh, we believe neurotically that it's over the horizon. And capitalism has just brought down and structuralized this libidinal hope. And then on top of that, you have mystification. So the dress that relates to mystification, you know, that on this on this sort of third level, um, you know, shields our shields our gaze. Maybe we talk about ideology. Then we have the matter of fact, factual thing. Those that own the means of production appropriate surplus value, and we have people on either side of surplus value. And then underneath we have this neurotic undergirding support. So how does this relate to community? Community. Well. I was also talking yesterday, um, somebody was saying about how this stress, oh, it was consciousness raising, consciousness raising. And that really became clear to me. A friend of mine said, it's not about consciousness raising, it's about unconsciousness raising. And this is why I'm a filmmaker and not a politician. Because the real undergirding operates on this libidinal, unconscious, neurotic level. And so these three things, neurosis, or the ideology promise, Appropriation of surplus value, material, actual structure, mystification, act in this sort of borrow me and not. And because we are divided beings, relates to community in a second, we all lack, we are all speaking subjects, we all have an unconscious. When we just talk at the super egoic level, sort of the voice of the mother, if you will, which is, I find funny when people talk about patriarchy, it's like, and, and, and sort of like the, the contemporary or you know, the sort of like critical theory thing of like patriarchy tied to super ego. It's like, I don't think so. Anyway, <laughs> but it's more like matriarchy if you ask me. But anyway, um, but we have to talk at this unconscious level or we have to get at the unconscious to sort of break this Boromian knot so that therefore we can understand how mystification operates and we can get ourselves away from always inevitably buying into the regime, which historically might've been over the horizon of death, you get that you get heaven, and now it's over the horizon of promotion, um, object that can fill you, commodity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in terms of community, well, today we like to talk about the X community, the Y community, the specific community based on aesthetics that are an emergent of a given moment in history. 
Well, when we have those communities, they always exclude another, always, even if it's in the name of quote unquote radical emancipation. I also want to talk a lot about words. And I, I used this term yesterday with the dress, let the meet slogans, let the meet political slogans. Just because someone says something, it literally doesn't mean anything. Words mean things. But as I am, you know, into Freud, it's not the intention that we think. The medium is the message, basically. That's absolutely right. But it's actually the words because they are speaking the unconscious. Anyway, um, so, but we can have, there is something that we all have in common. When we divide into these arbitrary categories that never capture, A, when we have a sort of conscious community where we say, right, we're setting up our community around X. There's always a scapegoat, there's always an outsider. But also these aesthetic categories do not capture the reality of our complex, contradictory nature. But one thing does. We all go through a second birth. We are all lacking. We all have an unconscious. So when I talked about, say, Tammy, I think what she gets at, and that maybe I don't think she's just a pure capitalist or a pure liberal, is that liberalism does always need the outsider because it is not a, communi a communion based on lack. It's a conscious attempt to annihilate class antagonism by pretending it can go away. So I mean, maybe we'll talk about chapter three of the Communist Manifesto later as it relates to the dress. But all of these attempts are to render a society without antagonism, but we are born of the Big Bang. We all go through a second birth. We Substance is subject. We live in a contradictory universe. So when we think we can just railroad over contradiction, we have to um, exclude those who will not fit because there is lack contradiction has to go somewhere. So that's when we scapegoat. But Tammy refused to do that. It was all about everybody lacks, everybody sins in Christian language. There is a universal. The only universal is contradiction, is lack, is the fact that we all have an unconscious. And that, yes, and this is why as well, this sort of trite leftism about, oh, these poor people, let's say in the past, the poor people on the other side of surplus value. And um, now those people are ignored, class is ignored, and all those poor people on the side of historical, cultural, aesthetics that preferred one type of person over another, or reactionary politics or whatever. But we are all guilty in this model. Yes, some of us are on the side of um, being appropriatees or appropriators, but as speaking subjects, we are all lacking and we all, um, in some way or another, some of, us, some of us might have a form of subjectivity that's psychotic, perverse, might be autistic, we might be obsessive, um, hysteric or whatever, but there is this attempt to fill this lack in one way or another. And that is the libidinal undergirding of whatever regime we have that allows us to be bought into mystification. So when it comes to, and this is why I really feel like neoliberal, liberal leftism is really not the answer and why it is by nature reactionary or will lead to reactionary outbursts is because it is not about community slash maybe the word is communion around the fact that we are all lacking subjects. So we need to change from consciousness raising to unconsciousness raising. Maybe we should change the tagline of the podcast. This is an unconsciousness raising podcast. There we go. All right, Nina, you're up. Nice. I like unconsciousness raising a lot. Um, okay, I will come back to the the dress as well <laughs> briefly, but I will start by talking about Let It Breathe, which was this uh, extract or act one by uh, S. Matisco. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Um, yeah, it was kind of interesting to read uh, something like this in the sense that I feel like I haven't really read much fiction, particularly in this mode, for quite a long time. I mean, the fiction I tend to read would be more, I guess, experimental. It would be stuff that's published by my friend Lewis at Morbid Books or uh, stuff by Infinity Land Press, um, 
who, you know, or it would be kind of prose poetry or it would be kind of stuff that's sort of edgy in one way or another. <laughs> um, so it was kind of interesting to, 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 to read this kind of more, if you like, traditional fiction. And I, it, it, it sort of poses a series of reflections about what's going on with fiction in general at the moment. And I, I'm sure I've mentioned before, but I think one of the reasons why there's been a trend towards a tendency towards auto fiction is because of a kind of generalized fear of saying the wrong thing. We see authors being conflated with their characters. And if people start writing unpleasant characters that say unpleasant things, then, you know, because of the the sort of literalism and the desire to, to catch people out, you often find authors being attacked. And particularly in the young um, adult fiction world, there seems to be a kind of very, uh, you know, prominent problem where you're not allowed to write a character that sort of differs from you in sex or race or, you know, something like this. And so there is a kind of problem of imagination, I think, that's sort of generally going on, which is based, predicated on a kind of fear. So it was kind of refreshing just to read something that had characters and a setting and conversation and that you could visualize. Uh, I didn't. I didn't uh, really uh, get get a handle on when it was set, but I didn't particularly mind that in a way. And I think in relation to our question of 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 community, um, and and this it it did sort of remind me a little bit about of Twilight uh, actually. And I think one of the kind of fantasies that is um, represented by Twilight and perhaps explored in this extract is. The idea that what people want is something like to live in a town or a community or a parish. And this is a kind of common complaint, both on the left and the right, actually, that that people that, that we live in an overly individualistic world, that we're atomized, that there is a kind of uh, often a, a sort of uh, fantasy that's going on in many people's minds. If only we could live in something that was more community oriented, whether it be a kind of commune in the sort of leftist sense or a artist colony or a, a kind of uh, or maybe something like a parish, you know, with a kind of religious aspect. Um, and I think a lot of people have these fantasies. You know, I've been teaching Illich. Um, and, and, you know, pretty much all my students have at one point mentioned thinking about what it would be like to live in a kind of Illichian village or an Illichian community and whatever those things would, would look like in relation to technology and so on. And, you know, and I'm sure I, you know, I myself think about this, these things, you know, what would it be like to live in a more communal way? And, and I have indeed made steps where we live to be more integrated into the kind of local community in various ways. And there is something uh, extremely beautiful about that. But one of the things that um, comes along with that, I suppose, is a sort of necessary tolerance for people and opinions that you don't necessarily share or agree with, or if you like a tacit agreement that there's something bigger than your individual feeling about something that you all participate in, which is absolutely a necessary fiction that binds you all together. Um, and one of the issues about living in a very small place and something my parents said to me recently comes to mind. So I recently went back to Wiltshire for um, their 50th wedding anniversary, which is a very lovely event. And they live somewhere, they live in a very small village and they've known the same people for, for 50 years. And, I've sometimes asked them how it is that they've managed to stay friends with everybody. You know, I mean, if you live in the same place, there is a kind of imperative for people to get along. Otherwise, the risks of, you know, social ostracism, uh, awkwardness are intense, right? You can't kind of get away from these places for better or worse, um, and sometimes worse. And my dad rather amusingly said, well, none of the men fancied the other women's wives, was one was one reason why everyone managed to stay friends, and my mother said, "Well, it's because we don't really discuss politics, you know, and and so that there is a kind of um, a payoff. It's that there are certain things you can't discuss in order that the social bonds be um, strong, and, and and in a way you can't really discuss them too much for fear of eroding that bond. So they have friends who have politics that are very different from them, and everybody knows that they have different." opinions within this group and they try not to kind of go into it too much um and then it sort of struck me that on the contrary therefore like the city 
um, is associated instead with a certain kind of antagonistic disagreement and that the city is perhaps the place where these things can happen. But the city is also the place where people, you know, go to disappear. They they become anonymous. Um, you know, we've, we've discussed before the kind of casualization of intimacy through dating apps and the kind of the interchangeability and the commodification of individuals um, in our particular culture. So it's interesting to come back to the text and the dress. <laughs> one of the one of the things I noticed looking at the dress, which I did message to you yesterday and put as a joke on Facebook, is that it doesn't say tax the rich, it says ax the ich, which is like get rid of the I, basically. And so it's a kind of proposal for ego dissolution. Um, and if the medium is the message, then um, AOC's um, but is is trying to tell people to give up on their ego uh, somehow. At the same time as appearing at the the Met Ball, where the question of who gets to have a face is uh, blatantly obvious, and this is uh, more and more something I think about during COVID times, where the working class are generally masked. Like if you go to a restaurant, and those people who are at the like the elites at the Met Ball all have their faces uncovered. Um, hypocritically or otherwise. I mean, you know, Glenn Greenwald wrote a long piece about this um, recently that someone sent me, um, whereas all of the people working have masks on, you know, and it doesn't seem to bear any relation to any kind of scientific or rational distinction. So the only distinction that's on show is a class-based one about who gets to have a face. Um, And this also relates, I think, to who gets to have a character. And the question of character in fiction then as in this text that we looked at, um, is interesting precisely because it reminds you of the fact that the way in which people's lives play out um, changes in relation to the the media that we use to discuss what it is to even have a character. And a character then become, become it can be a question of virtue. There's lots of virtue terms in this text in, in terms of adjectival um, accounts of who people are and what they believe in and what they stand for and why they do certain things so questions of psychological motivation um and i think we're sort of online somehow moving towards a kind of post character age and that this kind of memory holding of everything all the time um induces a kind of um fragmentary inconsistent form of social being which is radically opposed to something like the commitment necessary for living in any form of community or parish um, or any, you know, whether it's a commune or, or, you know, somewhere or village where some people, the same people are together all the time. And you have to actually deal with the complexities of other human beings and you can't just run away and you can't just stop being friends with them and you can't just um, unfriend them because they're everywhere and they're, they're your life, you know, and you are the community. Um, and, you know, on the flip side of that, you can have vigilantism and mobs that, that occur in small places um, that are sometimes mitigated by um, the, I don't know, the cosmopolitanism of the metropole. Um, but at the same time, I think what we're seeing on lo- playing out online are very, very fundamental, basic anthropological human desires for in-group, out-group belonging, but without any of the reality, obviously, um, of those uh, forms of belonging. Um, so everything gets reduced to kind of base motives um, and sort of deep um, sort of uh, emotional needs that don't actually bear any relation to any sort of sustained longevity of what a community might actually look like, um, which isn't good. (laughs) All right, I'm up. So, Let It Breathe is my girlfriend's first novel. It's set in California wine country on the eve of the First World War. It's about a prosperous rural community referred to only as the Valley. The novel is about the Valley as a whole rather than a main character. It therefore purposely includes a lot of what writers call head-hopping. The novel switches perspectives frequently, allowing the reader to see conversations from all the participants' points of view. This was the dominant style in the 19th century, but contemporary novelists avoid it. It conflicts too much with the liberal emphasis on the individual with the recent obsession with personal identity. 
The novel begins with the arrival of the Cleavers, a nouveau riche family from New York. Sebastian, the head of the family, is something of a Republican dad. He believes in hard work and personal initiative. He's very bourgeois. When Sebastian arrives, the valley is run by the Garson family. The Garsons are an old-school farming family, a much more traditional outlook. Their patriarch is William Garson. William is getting older, and Sebastian hopes to move in on his turf. As Sebastian and William feel each other out, we get introduced to the younger generation. Sebastian arrives with two daughters, Victoria and Evelyn. Victoria traipses after her father, trying to impress him. Evelyn, however, is off in her own world, connecting to the valley on a spiritual level. William has three sons, Derek, Adam, and Thomas. Derek is valiant, and Adam is a bit of a comedian. Thomas, the youngest, is a sweetheart. He has a thing for Evelyn, and he hopes to bring the Garsons and Cleavers together through marriage. Then there's another boy, Charles. Charles comes from a poor background. His father is a violent alcoholic and his mother is a Christianized indigenous person. Charles is in school with Thomas and Evelyn only because he never graduates. After he defends Evelyn from a bully, Charles is brought into Sebastian's inner circle. Eventually, he's adopted as a son. The bully's name is Renly. He's a cruel kid, and he's the closest thing the novel has to an antagonist. There's so many other viewpoint characters. But fundamentally, the novel is about the valley as a community, about the threats the community faces from modernity. There's a transfer of power from one generation to another, and from one class to another. William and Sebastian will have to give way to Thomas and Charles, and the aristocratic Garsons can only survive by finding a way to incorporate the bourgeois cleavers. Then there are big existential threats, like the war and prohibition. The war threatens the lives and careers of the young men, Prohibition threatens the valley's economic base and the power of the old farm families. Along the way, there are random tragedies. Act 1 ends in a horrific flood. All the men go out to lay sandbags, both Cleaver and Garson alike. Sebastian is new to the area. He doesn't know the terrain as well as the rest. He's clever and industrious, but when you're fighting floods, those qualities don't matter very much. He slips. He falls. He hits his head against a rock. They save him from drowning, but the fall eventually kills him. The loss of Sebastian opens up a power vacuum. Charles becomes the trustee of Sebastian's estate, and now the Cleavers are led by a young man who profoundly lacks the education and social niceties associated with polite society. Sebastian picked Charles because Charles is clever. Will that be enough? It wasn't enough for Sebastian. And what is going on with Evelyn? She's getting involved in some pretty occult shit. It's making a lot of people in the valley nervous. There's a lot going on here. My girlfriend wrote this book when she was in her second year at Purdue University. Purdue is known mainly for engineering and agriculture. It's not much of an arts school. Literary agents and MFA programs don't look at her because Purdue isn't well regarded in her area. To further complicate things, my girlfriend is dyslexic. She had to do all this on her own with very little help. When she showed me her novel at the start of our relationship, I was nervous. If I didn't like it, the relationship probably wouldn't have worked. But I really got a kick out of Let It Breathe. I read it cover to cover, and I don't always do that with novels. It's available on Amazon because there's no other way to get it in front of people. I doubt I have the infrastructure to make a difference for her, but I really hope people read it because I've never seen anything quite like it. And I think it's really cool. There's yet, like, will you, I actually have so, oh shit. I was just talking there and I muted myself, so sorry. <laughs> no, um, like so many things about what both of you were saying um, sparked loads of thoughts. First of all, about this idea of old fashionedness and related to novel writing and few novels. I always also write in the round where I do chapters as different characters, um, which that's a separate thing. But this idea of, I'm uh, often told that my writing is very old fashioned. So I'm sorry, I... Read the classics growing up, growing up, what am I going to do? And I have a personal aversion to the um, extreme um, pritstick paired backness of today's. It reminds me of people like, you know, those poems where people like cut up a page and stick it together. That's what I feel like contemporary stuff is a lot of. But anyway, so I know that um, statement about work very well um, in relation to my experience industry style. Um, but also, it's interesting because. 
obviously this idea of the individual, I have a multifarious response to this, but just in terms of story writing or narrative, so yes, you need um, a lacking subject or a set of subjects that pursue something um, and have sort of a train track, a sort of libidinal journey through a story, but the really, and that actually can have a really emancipatory insight because it's in the revelation that happens towards the end of the film that you can undercut the fantasy structure. So I actually think that's what film, especially is good at, but also novels is undercutting libidinal investment in uh, a futurity, complicating, muddling, revealing lack. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have to be an individual at all. And I totally agree with you with what you say about this focus on the individual. However, this tying back though to this idea of acts the ick, which is very interesting because <laughs> ego, obviously we, okay, we, we're like ambivalent beings and we require going through the solidity of ego in order to be able to forego obsessions with identity later in life. So obviously this, this obsession with identity today, I think the, the individual um, is maybe more obsession with the individual, you know, is, 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 is not just a 2021 issue, a post-2014 issue. Um, we do live in an individualist, quote unquote, society. Um, but in terms of identity, so identity is an ambivalent idea. So we do live in an era where the ego has and is often eroded. This is for very, very many reasons that psychoanalysts point out, but often refrain from pointing out because in our liberal world, this is quite shocking to people to say, as in nature is nurture. We, our egos develop, we aren't born with an ego. We develop and solidify our ego in relation to those around us and certain functions occurring. When we render family structures more and more precarious economically and actually physically, this can lead to um, conditions where infants do not form a strong ego. And this can lead to um, sort of a reactive obsession with a pursuit of identity later on. So for instance, we obviously have pursuits of identity and I am this, I am becoming this, I am that, and um, trying on often different identities uh, today. Or we have an identity, you know, it's not like we're becoming something else. We have an identity and we decide to lean into it, which can often be a very neurotic thing. Neurotically, that is, whatever it is, the commodity, the hope, the object, the idea, the identity will give us essence, transcendence, will return us to the whole. And then we always discover that it doesn't. So it can be a neurotic thing, but it also can be a psychotic thing um, because we're trying to lock down our ego. Without an ego, so act the ick, we are anxious and we do live in an age of anxiety. Some of my um, psychoanalysis friends say that we're in an era of hysteria, um, but many others believe that there is more and more psychosis. Um, which is to do with um, a lack of grounding within the borders of the ego at a certain period of time. And you can actually, psychoanalysis can help. It, I mean, some people believe that psychoanalysis can't help psychotics, but it actually can because you, you speak to the rational part of the ego to sort of try to form an ego or sometimes give an artificial limb, quote unquote, to the ego. Um, but the point being so is identity is not one thing or the other it, because... Um, we are, become, we are becoming selves and because we are born twice and our nature is our nurture. So our nurture is ourselves. So it's like a process. Um, but also obviously, so actually anxiety also is highly conducive to capitalism. The more anxious we are, the more um, material unstable we are, the more we are likely to <laughs> obsessively latch on to promises. Um, this can be both, a, you know, this can be any kind of thing, but it's often a neurotic thing. But obviously, you know, there's the uh, Deleuze Guattari thing of schizoanalysis that to break down the ego in a 68 kind of way. Obviously, this is a, not necessarily accurate about the writings, but often is to do with the way these thinkers are appropriated. You know, jouir sans entrave, like to enjoy without borders, but you can only enjoy with borders. You only want what you can't have. And like egos are necessary in order to be able to enjoy and stuff. Or they are like, they're not, it, this idea that's sort of like, um, faux Eastern, erase the ego. It's like the ego is actually extremely helpful and prevents the reactive, what we culturally say is ego-driven, which is more 
obsessive search or frenetic search for locking down an identity that we don't feel we have. So ego, a strong ego prevents us from, from becoming like ego driven. You know? <laughs> but the point being is like schizoanalysis is also not the solution. You're not going to have just some like um, magical curing of society's problems by making everybody psychotic. You know, it's like psychotic psychosis is often like terrifying for people who are going through um, issues related to it. But it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say, Benjamin, how sweet that it is that you chose something by your girlfriend. And um, I actually really like this um, gesture of supporting people that we care about. And I, I thought, you know, that actually one way to kind of kickstart a culture is to just celebrate the work of people that we're around and and this kind of thing and it's it's kind of necessary but it the other slightly more complicated aspect of that is what do you do when you like somebody but you don't like their work um or you don't like some of their work and you don't want to it to undermine your relationship with them and it is a it is a question i mean when i uh, met the person I'm now with. I gave him a copy of my book, and he didn't want to read it. Uh, the platforms, you know, which is a very sort of personal piece of autofiction, and he didn't want to read it for several weeks um, in case he didn't like it, you know. So, and I do understand that <laughs> that worry, um, and I think it's it's very interesting when you're in very close proximity to someone. You can both be you know, extremely admiring, but also extremely critical. And that criticality can be very helpful, but it can be awful. It can, you know, it's like, it's like when your mother criticizes you, for some reason, it's a thousand times worse than when it comes from anybody else, um, regardless of what the content is. So something about that proximity and judgment, I suppose, even though that judgment might in fact be kind of very um, helpful, um, Ultimately, there's something kind of potentially always very brutalizing um, about it. Um, and yeah, and, and this kind of goes back, to, I think, to the, the question of, of, of ego, really. And I, and I think one of the ways in which I came to understand writing is how to separate it from the idea of an expressive self or a kind of being that could be hurt um, if people didn't like what I wrote, like that to, to kind of make it into a job and a task rather than, or, you know, or a skill, uh, something that can get better rather than something that was a kind of direct, somehow a direct emanation of my soul. And that if somebody didn't like it, then it was some kind of horrible attack on me as a person. And I think probably anyone who does something, you know, creative or in public, thoughtful, philosophical, you know, fiction or whatever, has to try to develop some kind of distanciation technique, um, the better, I think, to have a sense of self. And I agree with Helen that there, a healthy ego is a necessary thing. And I think one of the problems now is you have lots of selves, but they're very brittle and they're very fragile egos. And looking for kind of recognition in a sphere in which that recognition itself is extremely um, minimal, tangential, not personal, not face to face, you know, like the like button or the the viral tweet or whatever. I mean, these are kind of flimsy things that don't actually um, really mean anything in a certain way. They're certainly not like, I don't know, the the recognition that my, my parents got from their friends for being married for 50 years, you know, by virtue of people turning up to their party, for example. You know, that's that's like a lifetime of relationality. And, and and I suppose it's that question of knowing who you are in relation. And, and you know, we, we often forget that we are, if you like, no, almost nothing and nobody without our relation, you know, without relationality, without our ties, whether they're chosen or unchosen. Mm -hmm. And often people seek to kind of cut ties. Um, you know, they, they have fleeting relationships with people. They have flaky friendships. They leave people that they've previously committed to. You know, they have the, these, you know, the, the, there's almost like an encouragement of, you know, leaving people because people are, can be replaced. And, and of course, they absolutely can't. And I've been doing quite a lot of work lately looking at 
Polanyi, um, not the the Great Transformation, which is his more famous work, of course, which is an extremely important book, but actually some of his very interesting um, work from the um, 1933-1934 on fascism. He wrote an essay on the essence of fascism in which he tried to oppose successfully or otherwise um, a Christian notion of the individual, which he said was the thing that was being being eroded by fascist politics. Um, and it's very interesting to try to think about the different notions of the individual that are not reducible to the the consumerist individual or the, the, the way in which the individual is presented to us today, particularly as, as a an image of the of a bastion of, of resistance against homogenizing tendencies, whether mm-hmm. they be authoritarian, consumerist, uh, and so on. And but but the the individual is always therefore the social individual, right? It's the it's the individual in the parish. It's the individual, well, in communion, as Helen said, like in in um, participating in a collective experience at the same time, responsible for his or her own soul in the in the Christian um, language. And I think, you know, I wonder if. Um, Millennials, <laughs> slightly tangential, but might be might be undergoing something of a midlife crisis soon. Like I, and in relation to who they are as individuals, and I, I can sort of see it coming. Uh, not to be all Cassandra about it, but I mean, millennials will soon be. I mean, if some of them are already kind of, I don't know, getting towards. I guess 35, 40. I don't know. When do people have midlife crisis? Late 30s, early 40s. And I wonder if there'll be this kind of collective crisis of a lot of millennials, which will partly be to do with what it means to actually have to take responsibility for yourself. Um, I'm not saying that lots of younger people don't. A lot of people do, obviously. Um, But they're not necessarily the kind of people who are being promoted as, let's say, voices of their generation, or they're not, you know, necessarily the people that we are exposed to if we look online um and i i sort of wonder what the notion of the individual might be for the middle-aged millennial and what form it will it will take uh, to uh connect it to the novel mm. the the two girls right victoria and evelyn are kind of different faces of uh, what you do when you're in a family that doesn't do a whole lot to construct a sense of self for you because their mother is dead and, and died in New York before they arrived. And their father is consumed with trying to build wealth and power for himself. So he's kind of in and out and not very present, right? So the older daughter, Victoria, is constantly trying to impress the father and then constantly trying to impress Renly, the, the bullying kid. And He's able to figure out that he can get her to do pretty much whatever he wants by doling out a mix of condemnation and praise because she is so sensitive to other people telling her uh, what's valuable, who she should be, what she should be doing. She never really developed that sense internally, so she's constantly trying to get it from other people. At the opposite end of that spectrum, you have Evelyn, the spiritual, mystical girl who kind of retreats into her own world uh, and into her own space. And she also isn't really embedded with the affairs of the valley uh, because she's really put up a wall between herself and everything else that's going on. So you have kind of, because there's an insufficient sense of, of community rootedness for the two girls, you have two different strategies for coping with that. One, which is a constant reaching for people, and the other, which is a withdrawn posture. And in both cases, the you know the arcs for the girls are: can they overcome that relationship to the valley? Can Victoria develop sufficient level of autonomy that she doesn't end up just completely sucked into the Renly world? And can Evelyn get out of her head and bring some of the things that she's been thinking about and playing with into the valley and use those to actually help and benefit people around her rather than just being completely withdrawn and walled off? And I see, I think a lot of, of that in the millennial generation, where you have a lot of millennials who are just reaching for praise from other people because mm-hmm. they were in households where they, nothing was ever good enough. And at the other side, millennials who have put up big barriers and, and emphasize that kind of uh, uh, 
introversion or anxiety or depression and, and are saying, keep society away mm-hmm. from me because it's too much, it's overwhelming, right? And in both cases, it's, it's a self that hasn't really developed to the point where it can engage with the other, right? And I think that's kind of what you uh, are both in different ways getting at, that part of the, we, we think about everything as, or certainly I often frame it as an excess of individualism, but before you can really have any kind of healthy engagement with the other, you have to establish yourself, yeah. lest you just be drawn about by whatever is going on. Absolutely. And and the the less strong your sense of self is, the more you are tied to a toxic pursuit of confirmation of identity through, I am this, I am that, give me praise. I withdraw with these boundaries. And it's sort of like, you know, how the quietest isn't the solution, nor is the the mono, the person who gets on dusts their soapbox off and just monologues, you know. Mm. And we do live in an age an age of monologue rather than dialogue. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, psychoanalysis talks about this a lot. Hegel talks about, about this a lot in terms of identity. You know, we never see ourselves except for in mirrors and on on Zoom. You know, we are within the eyes of the other. We literally exist because of the existence of other. We are the other. Not only that, you know, we have no essence other than our nurture which is in relation to the other. You know, so we really are, we come, we become ourselves through our experience in relation to other people. So we really are, you know, not this or that, you know, it's much more sort of like, um, we obviously have a strong sense of self, but this is not a material, well, I mean, I always talk about how uh, psychoanalysis is the materialism of the, the unconscious, but yeah, we have this, we have, we, we generate this sense of self and that allows us to, to navigate the world. The other thing is, so just talking about like um, the quote unquote Christian thing related to how a notion of Christian identity is anti-fascist, you know, to use actually like not the sort of uh, version of whatever that word means these days, but like as in it's resistant to fascism. Yeah. Is this idea of sin and obviously this idea of acceptance of lack, as in we all lack. I do think part of the thing with millennials and maybe this is part of the midlife crisis is coming to confront, confront your, your lack, you know, your, your sort of failure in, in, in terms of your fantasy of your life or, or yourself. And so, you know, this itch that can't be scratched lack, if we, if it's sort of, we, we become, um, you know, caught in its call and believe that anything can fill it, that is really what, you know, how capital, the fuel that fires the engines of capitalism and obviously capitalism and fascism, quote unquote, are related, um, or any other sort of like desperate ideological lockdown. You know, so this is the thing with Christianity. At its core, if you take it philosophically in a Paulinian sense, and this idea of collective sin, the cross is the end of meaning. It's not religious. <laughs> but anyway, but but the point being is like, if you can accept your lack, you aren't caught up, you don't get caught up in this stuff. You just don't. You don't need to change, you know? You don't. Yeah. And I, I think th- millennials, without the sense of self, to be able to tolerate the lag, you know, can get yeah. caught up in things. You know. I mean, I think I think one of the most sort of beautiful things about, you know, being in the world <laughs> is in if you like the otherness of of the other in their otherness, right? Mm-hmm. So precisely, so for example, when we when we love somebody, we don't love them. Um, well, we might like some aspects of them because they're similar to us, or they have similar interests, or something like that. But ultimately, we love them because they are not us, right? Because we love them in their difference, you know. And I and and it's the things about them which we often can't even articulate, but it's to do with a kind of kernel or a sort of something that's slightly obscured or occluded from us that we see in them that they, you know, you don't even want to necessarily tell them what it is you see because you enjoy it so much, (laughs) whether it's a gesture or a, you know, something they do that they might not even be aware of, but it's something that for you, is the other in their otherness and it's it's part of what you love about them if not really the at the foundation of it and i think this kind of revelation of the other in their otherness is also something um 
that I think a lot of people find quite difficult, particularly, as you said, um, Helen, I think, or, or Benjamin, that, that we live in a, a monologic, not a dialogic age. So when people are having discussions of, online, let's say, about difficult issues that might have lots of aspects that, you know, are quite nuanced, where people are coming from lots of different perspectives, um, the temptation for people to think, well, I've got the right position and anyone who disagrees with me must be doing so for malevolent reasons um, is crazy. And we see it constantly. You know, there's a kind of very, very quick slippage into the ad hominem or the stereotyping your opponent or saying that this, the, your opponent must be possessed of, of hate. We've Obviously, we've discussed this in previous weeks, um, rather than the acknowledgement that actually most people are engaged in good faith with reasons for their positions and people's reasons just differ. Um, yeah. And that, you know, in reality, adult political and social life is about trying to um, work out how best to live given the different interests that different people have for good reason. Exactly. And in fact, very few people are bad actors. Very few people are, um, you know, coming from a place without reason or, you know, are, are only motivated by by hatred and malevolence. Um, and that's something I think that people also have to come to terms with. And, and the politically partisan nature of oppositional online politics is insane. Yes, um, you know, and it, it's so immature. It's, it's the opposite of an adult discussion. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is the thing. Politics is about living into the contradiction and like having a dialogue or a multiplicitous log, whatever that is, through through within the contradiction. Yeah, what you're talking about in terms of love of the other is object A, you know, the this unnameable object cause of desire that is a mystery to us. And it's an infinite mystery. It's like this, the hall of mirrors that goes on forever and we'll never get to. And that's why it's the not getting. It's the mystery that is precisely what insights, insights I desire. But, you know, this is the thing, again, to go back to Axe the Ick, like... <laughs> anxiety leads to this, you know, and, and we obviously, you know, student loans, obviously many people have payday loans, you know, economic precarity, the states dissolving, um, communities dissolving, being designed to dissolve in terms of what, what we're going through. It's like, it is to erode, erode, to, to, to render anxious. And this le leads to this, like everything becomes captured within this urgency. You can't say that. Oh my God, this, we have to focus on this. If we don't focus on this, we go, which b means that absolutely no politics ever gets done. Because mm. people are trying to be God inside the individual, mm -hmm. inside the embodied subject. They're trying to be the whole truth and the whole good inside an embodied being. And of course you can't do that. Uh, and filling in the lack is is to take on all of the truth and goodness of the whole universe and and to have it all inside a particular and that's a contradiction in terms exactly and i i think that to really to love anybody is to acknowledge first and foremost that you can't have the whole truth and the whole good embodied within yourself uh, if you did what use would you have for anybody else <laughs> so you have to start with the premise that of course there are some things that try as you might to be as good as you can be you're never going to fully get. There are areas that you're never going to be perfect in or great in. Every person is going to have areas where they're stronger or weaker, better or worse, right? And once you can acknowledge that you don't have every positive quality and you can't, no matter what you do, have every positive quality because the Stoic sage is not a real person that anybody can be, you know, once you grapple with that, then you can really appreciate other people because you can spot in other people the things that you not only don't have but will never have and accept that you will never have. And the only way you can have those things in your life is to have others and to have a community that brings others into constant contact with you and you into relationship with others. And I think that's what we're really struggling to do because so many millennials and, and young people, we were told we were supposed to save the world and be special and be the superhero, right? Uh, you know, Christians know they can't be Jesus, mm. but millennials think that they can be Superman or Batman or whoever it might be. Yeah, I, absolutely. But I think the Christian desire to sort of become more like Jesus, mm -hmm. let's say, yeah. is, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm interested in, in this because I, I do think that people can be better versions yeah. of themselves, right? I, 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 I myself, I'm generally a better version of myself than I used to be, although not always. And, you know, I, I'm committed to the idea that people can improve, you know, they, 
either through help or their own will or a combination of the two and that the kind of failings and flaws that we all have, um, you know, which I think become more and more evident what they are is the older you get, you know, the, the patterns repeat themselves and so on. Um, and that which you can see in the other as well. Like when I, I think what's also extremely beautiful is when you see somebody struggling with themselves, but trying to do better yeah. basically. And, 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 you know, again, the kind of question of community or relationality depends upon a lot of Christian um, ideas, which are often missing in the broader culture, which would be to do with things like forgiveness, to do with atonement, to do with, you know, to actually apologizing, you know, to actually apologize to somebody is to not only, if you like, admit the sin or, or the, the the harm or the, the damage that's done and and um, and not to say something like, oh, I'm sorry um, that you felt hurt, but to say I did hurt you, mm-hmm. you know, um, and to, if you like, accept responsibility for the gesture, even if you didn't mean it, and of course, and, and the vast majority of the time, nobody means to hurt anybody else, right? It's often unintentional, it's accidental. Um, but nevertheless, to accept responsibility for that which you didn't intend to be harmful um, and not expect to be forgiven as well yeah. either. So well, it- <laughs> this is the, this is this thing, this, um, so I always say when Jordan Peterson was in like the public consciousness for a while, like the thing that annoyed me about him the most, well, aside from the fact that it was done at Kruger effect all the way down. And this was somebody who believed that he you knew about so many different spheres. And then as soon as you like, as soon as he said something about a sphere that you knew about, you're like, oh, right. No. Okay. But anyway, is the, is the step zero. So the 12, his 12 rules for life, but without the step zero, which is acceptance of lack, you're getting nowhere. So the thing is, it's like the frenetic pursuit of perfectionist um, embodiment of, I am the modest, perfect Jesus. Mm. A will always fail because nobody is perfect. But B, if you, it's a fantasy because you cannot be perfect because we exist in a world because of the Big Bang, because of antagonism as such. So there's no perfect. If you aspire to perfect, to sustain the fantasy, which is a comforting fantasy that reminds us, or the fantasy tells us, no, there is a wholeness and completeness. No, this lack is only temporary. No, your anxiety is only temporary. You can get there. You can't. So what you do to sustain the fantasy, because if you ever got the fantasy, you'd realize it's also lacking, is you self-sabotage to guarantee that the fantasy always exists a fantasy. But the only way to actually get better, as in become more like, yeah, a better person, and I'm all for self-improvement, you know, being a good person, doing constructive things, is you have to accept how you are now, you might never improve, and B, that that's not going to make you whole, there's no whole and completeness. Because there's no perfect, There's no perfect. people make the perfect the enemy of the better, Mm -hmm. and the only way to get any kind of better is to first acknowledge the impossibility of the perfect, right? And then you you have, so Plato talks about how people conceive of romance as two people coming together to form a unity, right? Now, even that is too ambitious because that suggests that one other person would make you perfect and that two people together is enough for perfect. Mm -hmm. That's not enough for perfect. Nothing is enough for perfect because to be perfect would be to be beyond the material. It would be to not be distracted by all of the consequences of being a particular person with a particular body that has particular physical needs that potentially conflict with those of other people in other bodies. Real perfection would require the transcendence of embodiment and is therefore not possible in this realm, right? So there's no combination of people you're going to have that's going to get you to perfect. What you can do is you can get better by drawing on the particular advantages and perspectives and skills and talents of lots and lots of different people appreciating the particular things that different people bring to the table. And that's what a real community is. A community is lots of different people in different roles bringing to to the table their different skills, talents, and abilities in ways which make everybody better, but nobody perfect and nothing perfect. And so it requires an acceptance of this continuing imperfection. And that takes the form of a willingness to accept that politically, the community is not everything you'd like it to be spiritually, religiously, it's not everything you'd like it to be. The people in the community, while they bring some things to the table, have other qualities you don't like and which bother you, right? But you've got to be able to put up with all of that. And you can't hope to socially engineer the community in such a way that every single person is all positives and no negatives, right? So you've got to interact with the community knowing that you're never getting to that level of perfection. You have to find a way to accept that 
So not only do you have to accept that you will not be perfect, but that you won't make yourself perfect with your relationship with one other person or with your relationship with society, mm -hmm. and that there aren't perfect relationships or perfect communities. Exactly. And that is a big load yeah. on a society that is constantly on the drug of utopian yes, liberalism. This exactly. idea we're going to have a revolution and then we're going to have a perfect society. Mm -hmm. uh, that, Do you know, the thing is, it's funny, I've seen, I've seen actually people, I would... You know, in my definition of the left, I wouldn't call them leftists, but, you know, let's say culturally we're calling them leftists, who say, who criticize other leftists, oh, they, you know, they're not, they don't even call themselves utopian anymore. Ah! And you're like, yeah, and that's why they're left wing. Anyway, like, we live, like, substance is, A doesn't equal A. We live, substance is subject, even rocks are divided. You know, the, here we get these wonderful, there's a beach a couple of months ago, these wonderful suns. They, basically, sometimes when the heat is a certain temperature, you get sort of mist in the air. And then you get these like incredible sunsets with this sort of like colored, you know, it's amazing, the sort of pastel-y and the sort of texture. Um, but that is there because of antagonism. You know, you, would, you wouldn't get that without antagonism. And so even with art, it's like the, the best, you know, what is art is it's like, it, it's, it's this like way that the contradiction exists within, in a certain way that moves us, you know. And... Yes, perfectionism is utopianism and it can't exist because it, it's impossible given the nature of our reality. And it is what leads to, A, so totalitarian societies. Again, this is utopian. It, the, the thing is that it isn't total because it doesn't take into consideration lack and it has to reject, throw out the person that doesn't fit their yeah. totalitarian vision. And so... And, and not only this, but this is the most violent, reactionary, and obviously Marx says this all the time. I read chapter three of the Communist Manifesto the other day, and it's like, ah, oh, yes, he gets it with utopianism and how it's reactionary, um, and how trying to do a sort of bourgeois leftism without just, oh, I don't really like class antagonism, so let's pretend it's not there. It's like, ends up being reactionary because it's utopian. Um, and that's not to say we shouldn't have a different form of society that within that form takes into consideration contradiction so that we don't materialize the class contradiction that we then repress. But fantasy creates, makes us have enemies because it's only behind enemies that the fantasy actually exists in their shadow, makes us actually violent. It is so, like the, the step zero. It's just, it's just like the, if there's one thing that we will have to do is step zero. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I just want, yeah, I agree with all that. I just, this thing about homogenizing, you know, I think this, uh, this is something, like, I don't know, I kind of get very worried about somehow. It's like this homogenizing tendency in cultures, um, whether it's sort of to do with opinions or, I don't know, even behavior, the kind of automatic policing of people, the the sort of inability to deal with people who are um, difficult and disagreeable and um, eccentric, you know, and, and the, the, the ways in which those people get othered as as bad or, or those that, you know, that somehow the evil is in them um, because they're not fitting in somehow. And, you know, we're surrounded by these forms of social division and, you know, the, the uncomfortableness, the discomfort that is induced by the abject in particular. When mm -hmm. we, we go outside and we see somebody who's a homeless drug addict, for example, many of them live around, around where I live. And, you know, the, the in a way, the, 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 the difficulty that everybody experiences, I think, in the both the recognition of the shared humanity, but the separation of that humanity in its mm -hmm. instantiation at the level of its division um, and asymmetry. Um, and this goes for class too. And I think the unbelievable kinds of hypocrisies that we've seen around the lockdown where working class people who've continued to deliver and make food and be exposed to, to whatever... Um, are somehow ignored because some middle class people are able to sit at home and mm -hmm. then order things from working class people um, without recognizing, if you like, the 
you know somehow what that what that means you know the fact that other people are doing all this stuff for you but but somehow you're on the side of the good because you're able to work on a computer Absolutely. or whatever um you know and and to go back to the to the mask like who gets to wear how ha, ha, who has to wear a mask who has to be vaxxed as a condition of keeping their employment and who doesn't you know all of the mm-hmm. elites having these parties where none of them are masked and it's almost like they're kind of showing off i mean it's nothing to do with anything but yeah, this is like the the whole mystification thing and how the ideology operates. And literally, we feel like we're good people by enacting mm. a thing that literally does not take into consideration class at all. And that to raise that is bad in some way is like, oh, you're, to- you're talking about the masks. That's got to be wrong because my oneness vision of myself as a liberal leftist who is always good. This thing, as Benjamin was saying, like this belief of oneself as the human God, because you have, you know, if you believe, if you don't believe in that, then you actually do believe in gods. Like you have to, because who else, if it's whole and complete, it has to be created by somebody who's whole and complete. But anyway, you see this so much on the liberal left, there's absolute certainty. And it's like, if there's somebody on the left who doesn't embody the position that I think is right, they're like gone off milk. There must be something wrong with them because I am absolutely right because I'm a good person because I don't believe in antagonism. I'm good, you know? (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I love about this novel is that there's a bunch of conflict in it between classes, between these bourgeois new arrivals and these landed aristocrats. But this conflict isn't resolved with just one of them beating the living hell out of the other and vanquishing the other. It's not some kind of revolutionary moment where the cleavers come in and drive out the Garsons and then you have a liberal society. It's this wrangling of values with a level of mutual respect, a level of awareness that one needs the other and attempts to reconcile those things. And in the places where we transitioned to modernity without enormous amounts of bloodshed. It it surely must have happened through that kind of wrangling, right? And if we're to go anywhere positive in the future, it's going to require that kind of wrangling where there's an awareness that even the people that we we really don't like or the classes or or groups that we really find disagreeable, uh, that there's something of value in those perspectives that we have to find a way to integrate or assimilate and the careful wrestling with that. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that you know, and that makes me ponder a lot when I read this novel is that there are, of course, a couple of characters in this novel that are really hard to assimilate, like Renly, the cruel bullying character. And, and for so long in this novel, the characters wrestle with what to do with him because they have such a hard time finding a role for such a person, uh, someone who has just spent so much of their life in, in poor situations that bring out the worst qualities. And what do you do? And, and our society has never really found a way to deal, even the most rooted communities, with certain kinds of people. And, and how tragic it is to ever admit that you really can't find a way to integrate such a person, because you know, what societies do is they execute people they really can't find a way to integrate. And when there is an execution, it's a tragic thing because it's an admission that everyone has failed to find any other way to make it work. And so it's an acknowledgement that the community has failed to be perfect and to fully integrate all of, all of the parts. And I think that that, one of the reasons why I really love this book is that it, it doesn't take any any destruction of any part of the valley as a triumph or a victory or a positive development uh, or as or as just a cathartic good thing every time the valley is unable to fit things together and something goes astray there's this sense of loss and sadness in this in this novel and it's it's one of the reasons why uh, my my girlfriend she's dyslexic and she's not someone who is necessarily going to read um, political philosophy, you know, because it takes her a while to read stuff. And if you look at the Flesh Kincaid on this novel, it's written at about a fifth grade reading level. It's pretty easy to read. Uh, And yet she has this kind of insight and she didn't need to read a bunch of theory to get it, that you have to find a way to mesh things together. 
And how did she pick that up? Because there's no reason to think that she would have looking at her background, looking at where she went to school. There's nothing about her that stands out as the obvious explanation for why she was able to catch on to this. You know, it's interesting because psychoanalysis has has helped me come to terms with certain things that happened in my life that I think have led me to think in certain ways. However, I do not think that there is an essence. And I think this is the problem with identity politics. It's like, if you're this, then you have to think like this. And then you obviously have people like Larry Elder who are from a community and they don't think in the prescribed way, which is sort of like a grateful victim, which is disgustingly patronizing. And if absolutely racist, um, then you you have to say that you're, you know, you're magically white and somehow whatever, that you, you embody whiteness. But I, I think anybody is capable of this insight. It's not it, when people say, oh, this is over intellectualism. No, it fucking isn't. This is very basic. But sometimes we need to use complex philosophy to help those who have been overeducated <laughs> with garbage, <laughs> which is a lot of us. Um, not that I'm actually very grateful for my education. So I take that bad about myself. But, um, you know. I think there's many ways to this. And often sometimes, I don't know about you guys, maybe Nina, you do some creative work. Sometimes you look at past work before you even conscious of talking about things in certain ways. And sometimes I think we talk about this, not because we've learned it, but we've come to it because we already happen to think this way, you know? And you're like, oh, that was very insightful, weirdly, or it was expressed in a different way, but it still touched on accurate things. Anyway. All right. So we're at about the one hour, five minute mark. So we should wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for listening. There will be a link to Sam's book if you want to check it out. Uh, and we're going to go do our B-side now, which uh, might be on that on that third chapter from the manifesto. Maybe we'll do that. That, that sounds fun. We'll do so, it related to the dress. Yeah, yeah. To, and by the way, the dress, we're referring to the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dress in case it's been a week since that news story came out. You don't quite remember. <laughs> Right. So thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.